0: we are live on and we are we are live on facebook everyone welcome to stater telling with a very uh, lovely crew revenue laya sarna dr Alicia fishbane dr david c Kalman, and rabbi dr emily Smokler. um if
1: you are watching on facebook live the chat will be the uh section will be monitored for
0: questions so do feel free to ask with that uh rabbi sarna, good evening Good evening. Welcome back to our second annual Cedar Telling, everyone. I'm so thrilled that we're bringing back this event, but with different panel of Cedar Tellers. Um, so what is Cedar Telling? Pray tell. Um, so Cedar Telling tries to bring to life this part of the Haggadah that tells the story about a number of rabbis and scholars, Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Yoshua, Rabbi ben Azaria, Rabbi Akiva, and Rabbi Tarfon who were reclining for their Passover Seder in Bnei Brak, and what did they do all night long at their own Seder? They spent that entire evening just telling the story of the Exodus from Egypt, and the way that I imagine that they're going is that they just told the story. They were not sitting there with a Haggadah with their own names in it, telling, uh, reading the Haggadah. They were just discussing what happened. What was it like? What are we supposed to be remembering? And so that project of telling the story of the Exodus in our own words, with our own experiences and expertise behind it, that is what motivates um, the dream for Seder telling. We will not go all night. We will not go until the time of the morning schma has arrived. Um, hopefully, we will have some time for your own questions for our Seder tellers. You can put them into the chat as we go. If you're watching on Facebook, as Kayla mentioned, you can put them into the chat there and she'll be monitoring that. Um, so really welcome everybody. And I want to introduce all of our tellers now. Who are you? Uh, so first, we have Dr. Alisha Ras he is the Associate Professor of Hebrew and Judaic Studies at NYU. He is a historian of Jewish culture in the medieval Islamic world and a scholar of medieval Jewish thought, law, and literature. His first book on the movement of Jewish Sufi Pietism in medieval Egypt, which is called Judaism, Sufism, and the Pietists of medieval Egypt, a study of Abraham Maimonides and his circle, um, won all kinds of awards. And his second book sounds really awesome also, so you should definitely check it out. And he's currently working on a study of how Islam, both as religious rival and political power, was portrayed in medieval Jewish literature, as well as how Muslims were depicted in the daily documents of Cairo. Dr. David B. is Scholar-in-Residence and Director of New Media at the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America, where he was also a member of the inaugural cohort of North American David Hartman Center Fellows. He leads the Kogod Research Center's research seminar in Judaism and the natural world. And he holds a doctorate from the University of Pennsylvania um, and his research touches on Jewish law, the history of technology, technology and ethics, material culture and, I hope we have a lot of islam tonight because he also studies islamic jurisprudence um and he is the owner of printercroft press and klm nops art house um he puts out a haggadah so you should definitely check that out um we have also rabbi dr erin lieb smogler she's the director of spiritual development and internship coordinator at yeshivat maharat where she was a teacher of mine um, she also teaches Chasidut and pastoral torah She earned her PhD from the University of Chicago's Committee on Social Thought, um, and she studied in Drisha's Scholar Circle additionally. um, And she actually also has an award-winning book about plague that just came out this year. Um, And many of you might be familiar with me. I am Drisha's Associate Director of Education, and I also direct our high school program. My name is Laya Asarna, um, and I'm so pleased to be here tonight in a dual role as both the Yodaat Lishol the one who knows how to ask the question. Um, and maybe this year, I will also um, share some ideas. Oh, the book features David common as well. Um, and maybe this year I will also share some ideas of my own. So last year we had the same event, but the world was in a much darker place. Yes, last year's event, that's the title of the book, Torah in a Time of Plague, but really last year's event was also Torah in a Time of Plague um, and we mostly told the story of oppression. We talked about the slavery. We asked, where does it begin? Where does that, where did the slavery begin? Where does the story begin? Um, and that was the majority of what we spoke about. But this year, I'm hoping that we can pivot towards the, the second part of the story and talk about the story of the redemption, which also features massively in our Seder night. And really, what are we celebrating if not that exact story? So hopefully that's what we will be focusing on this year. And to kick us off, I would love if all of the panelists, all of the cedar tellers can, can attempt briefly to try and kind of pinpoint. If you had to say in a sentence or two, where did the redemption begin? I'd love to hear it. So maybe we'll start with you, uh, you Rev. Smugler.
1: Okay, hi everybody, really a pleasure to be here. I'm here mostly because I want to hear from the other Seder tellers, uh, but I'll do my part as well. Um, so I want to uh, credit a student at Ishibat Maharat for raising the following question. Uh, the student is Sophia Freudenstein, and she's wonderful. And um, we had our own kind of Seder telling event today, um, and she spoke about... A Gemara which asks this kind of question when, when does redemption begin, or what are we really marking at the Seder? And Beit Hillel says it's the daytime redemption, and Beit Shammai says nighttime. And the question she posed, uh, you know, Beit but what is Beit Shammai thinking? What did it mean for that nighttime, by which he means, or in that context, seems to indicate the night before the actual exodus. What would it mean for that to actually be our reenactment? What is the mindset that we might be wanting to um, gain insight into? And she, she posed this as a question um, regarding fear and uncertainty um, and why, why would we want to accent those things um, as at our or as the beginning of the redemption story? Here's my take on it. Um, I do think that the the night before, the night before the big day um, is actually where this begins. Um, the, all precisely because of the uncertainty, precisely, I don't know about the fear, but the sense that the horizon of possibility is about to be radically, radically altered. Um, and I wonder if that's really where where the redemption begins in the possibility of actually envisioning an alternative to what has come before. And um, part of what I understand to be the slavery of the Jewish people um, was not only, of course, the uh, physical labor, but the, uh, you know, centuries long reality of being stuck in the same story, the same circumstances for generations. And to be born into that would be to be born into a world without possibility, a sense that is what will be. Um, And I think that maybe Beit Shammai's perspective, which is that this redemption began the night before meets Mitzrayim, might be an invitation to actually consider as a big part of the redemption, just the excitement and the anticipation of something changing, of something new emerging, without knowing what at all that is going to look like, but just actually uh, kind of leaning into the idea that uh, tomorrow actually is another day that might yet bring something different than what has come before. That.
0: Thank you. I think I might jump in on that because that's very similar thematically to what I have been thinking. But I want to place it earlier on the timeline. Um, so I would place that same kind of feeling and thought at Vatikhayana at Hayal Adim, like at the midwives keeping those children alive and the parents having children. Last year, we spoke kind of at, at great length about the, the hopefulness of, of the women in Egypt who were seducing their husbands and telling them, yes, like it's worth it to keep having children. Um, but to place it, it within the biblical text would be would be from that moment where the midwives said, I don't care, we're going to keep these kids alive. Um, and I've been reading kind of recently about um, like the Doomer's generation, which more or less refers to people my age who are not having children because of impending climate crisis. Um, and um, what does it mean in a situation that feels like doom to continue and to perpetuate your people and to perpetuate your story? Um, and to me, what that means then and to pinpoint it so early in the in the narrative is that redemption starts to flower even while the oppression is very much ongoing. Um, and that's where I were gonna pinpoint it, I would put it there. Um, Dr. Russ Fishby, what about you?
2: There we go. So can everybody hear me? Okay, I, it says I'm muted though, but it just looks like I'm not, so okay, okay, great. Um, I really appreciate uh, what both of you uh, just uh, shared about this idea that uh, the redemption begins before the leaving. Uh, and in fact, we have two different terms. We talk about it's, it's and we talk about G'ulat but there is a, there's a, a leaving and there is a redemption and they overlap, but they don't necessarily uh, have to be identical. I Actually, um, maybe, Arbeni and I wanna go even further back than you, um, but I actually wanna do that by way of thinking about another story, a story that um, takes place actually in Lithuania in 1941. Um, eh, that uh, comes from a tshuva of, of Ephraim Austria. Ostri. Rav was um, the rabbi, that sort of a, not not the only rabbi um, in, uh, uh, but but the one sort of rabbi of the uh, of the Kovno ghetto when the um, when the Nazis uh, conquered Lithuania in summer of 1941. Um, he was assigned by the Nazis to oversee the the Jewish library that was uh, to be the uh, the library of the future museum of the Jewish people. Um, So somehow he um, was placed in this unusual position of having access to Jewish books at a time when other Jews did not have access to Jewish books. And it was extremely providential that that this, uh, this happened because he was asked so many questions um, that he later, he made a vow at the time, that if he were to survive, that he would put these answers together into a proper collection of Shilot Shuvot. And that um, uh, and that's exactly what he did. Uh, thank God he survived the war and was able to, to put together five volumes called Shilot Shuvot Minamah Maakim, From the Deaths. There's one story that he tells of a, a man comes running up to him in the ghetto and asks, this question um, that, that uh, Rabbi, uh, as you know, we are currently enslaved by the Nazis. Uh, we are not free to go where we wish, to do what, as we wish, um, to practice or read what, what, what we wish. Uh, we are slaves. For all intents and purposes, we are slaves. Um, Is it permissible, he asks, to still say the words in the Birkot HaShacha, to still say, Shalom HaSani and I still say, thank you, God, for not making me a slave. And um, he spends about four pages discussing this question. I'm not going to go into it, but just basically, his answer is very interesting. Maybe I'll come back to it at the end uh, by way of coming back to this question, a question that you posed um, Where does the redemption begin? And I actually wanted to think about it even farther back in terms of where the Haggadah um, has us think about it, in terms of the, the two answers to the question, right? We're supposed to begin with, uh, genut, with the the lowliness of our state, and we end with uh, with shavach or shvach. Depending people pronounce it differently, um, that it's, um, it's supposed to end with praise. So the two uh, options that uh, the Amoraim give, um, of course, Rav and Shmuel. One of them, right? So Rav says, like, excuse me, Shmuel. We begin with the famous words, uh, "Avadim Right? We were slaves to 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 Parom in 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 the land of Egypt. Um, and it makes sense. It makes perfect sense. On the other hand, then we have uh, Rav's answer seems to come out of left field. He, t- he says, you know, our ancestors used to be idol worshippers, And then, right, uh, and, then, and then God brought us to his worship. So it's a very strange uh, answer. Um, lots of interesting ideas about why he brings that in. But, I mean, the most problematic issue, as far as I'm concerned, is the fact that, yeah, eventually they get to the part about they, they went down to Egypt. But Rav's version never actually gets to, to the redemption. He never says, "and and God redeemed us." The way it says before, with the avadim ayinu, misham, it never has that 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 ending in Rav's version. So What's going on there? Why? What's it even doing in the Haggadah? Right? It doesn't have to do with trying. And so, um, what 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 I think is going on there. Is that actually his answer? Is actually the um, the second time we say right Baruch with respect to to, to God in the Haggadah, The first one is Baruch haMakom, Baruch right God blessed is 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 the, the omnipresent. And this time around it says Baruch Hashomer Aftechatoli Yisrael. Thank thanks to God or blessed is the God who keeps the promise. I think that's Rav's answer um, to this question of where the where where is the redemption. Um, in other words, I think we can think about it in terms of. What um, we say, right, what comes right next is Shamda, this, uh, this promise what we, we, was with us in every generation, for many generations, before Mitzrayim, before Shi would be before the, the enslavement, and in Mitzrayim itself. We raise a glass, and so we say shamda we're raising a glass, I, I, I think, not to freedom, but to God's faith in us and our faith in God. And so, if we come back to our questions, you know, if you imagine a person who is—by uh, the way, if we're going on a bit too long now. You can steal some minutes from me later on. <laughs> um, but I, I this reminds is sort of a famous parable of you know, someone who is who's free and is told that he's going to be imprisoned, you know, tomorrow. What's going through that person's mind that night, as opposed to a prisoner who is. Um, who's told that he or she is going to be freed that night, that the next day. What's going through that prisoner's mind that night? Who, in other words, who's really free? The one who's in prison, but knows that freedom is around the corner or knows that there will be freedom or the person who's actually free, but feels that that, that any any minutes he's going to be enslaved or imprisoned. So I think that it's really, I, I think our state of mind is less about where we find ourselves. At this very moment, that about where we're headed, and in that sense, I would say that you know Shmuel tells a story as we know it from the you know from the the Torah. We got enslaved, we got liberated. Rav's version flips it on its head and says, actually, you know, Paro enslaved us on the outside, but could never enslave us on the inside because God already freed us before our ancestors ever set foot in Israel. Our our liberation began with God's faith in us and our faith in God. That's the v'hi sh'amda. And it's the mindset that allowed us to endure that external bondage in the shrine, and at many other times in our history. And I would come back to Raphael Oshri in his answer says, there's one, if there's one thing they can't take away from you. It's your inner freedom. They can enslave you on the outside, but they can never take away your identity, your devotion to Hashem, who you are
3: as a Jew. But I'll stop there. Hey, uh Dr. Kalman. Oh boy, uh, Dr. Reshefian, can I disagree with you? Um, I, so I, I, I totally buy this idea of like there being a difference between the in there and the outer redemption. But I think it's totally the reverse in that there is, you know, if you want to identify one moment that is that kind of moment redemption, you can kind of pick something simple like you know Moshe talking to Hashem. There's a burning bush you know, the languages of Gula, all of that, like the kind of the, the beginning of the plan, like th- that you could identify as a kind of clear moment when the plan is put in place. But then if you kind of, it's so hard to, 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 to think about the story without then thinking about what it is, what the experience of the Jewish people is in the desert and how much they struggle with being in this new state and how it actually takes such a long time to like to, to get out of that mindset of slavery. Um, I, I'm thinking about this that like, you know, we like to think that we are very good at responding to life-changing events by changing, and, and people have like a kind of huge um, inertia in them. Like, I, I think about um, in the the famous story of um, of Eliyahu uh, and the Koldma Madaka, Eliyahu kind of like, you know, encountering God through this like kind of still small voice, you know, there's like that amazing encounter. But one thing that I think people often forget about the story is that before the story, there's a kind of conversation between God and Eliyahu, where God's like, what are you doing here? And Eliyahu kind of complains a bunch. And then God reveals God's self to Eliyahu with like, all this, like, you know, these fireworks and amazing stuff. And then the Kodamah Madaka. And so Eliyahu has some, ex- some kind of experience of God. And then afterwards, God's like, what are you doing here? And Eliyahu says the exact same thing. Like, he, he doesn't seem to be changed at all. And it's like, that's like, oh, yeah, that's how people work. Like they don't they don't there's not like you don't get to flip the switch um and the other thing i'm thinking about is like um is is kind of to bring into an american context about the way that um you know we think about uh, slavery in america think about like the holiday juneteenth for example right like juneteenth doesn't celebrate the day that abraham lincoln signs the uh, Emancipation Proclamation, which is January 1st, it celebrates something that happens like two and a half years later, when like finally this edict makes its way over to a particular part of Texas. And even then it takes like 150 years for that date to become a federal holiday. So like these things are like so excruciatingly slow. So like I, I, on the one hand feel like there's that, there's like that kind of outer redemption, but like to actually have the redemption work its way inside is so, so hard.
0: Um, so I want to keep pushing on this inside redemption piece. And, and this time we'll, we'll start with you, Dr. Common. So just prepare yourself. I'm wondering if you can put yourself into the shoes of an enslaved or sandals, let's say, of an enslaved um, Israelite in Egypt, when they imagined what their freedom might look like, if let's say they did, when they imagined it, what were they hoping for? What were they dreaming of? Like, what did they think that that could possibly look like?
3: Um, So so there's this story um, that I I first came across when I was a kid in the big book of Jewish humor by um, by I.L. Peretz called Bunch of the Silent, which is about, like, this person who dies, he goes to heaven, and there's, like, that they kind of tell the story of his life and how he was like this amazing, incredible person who endured so much suffering over the course of his life. And uh, it was all terrible. And yet like he never, you know, never cursed God. Like, you know, he was never uh, ungrateful and he finally dies. And they asked, like, okay, you can get whatever you want. And he says like, I just want like some butter with toast every morning. And like, he has like no ability to think about what he wants because like he's, he's so much in that space that he actually, he he can't he can't get out of it. And and like that that made a huge impression on me. Like it's it's so hard to even develop that sense of want um wh- when you're in that moment. Uh, that's my response.
0: Yeah, great. Um Smokler, what about you?
1: The question is, what are the Jews dream?
0: Yeah, what what did they dream when they dreamed of freedom, when and if they dreamed of freedom?
1: Okay. Um so. I appreciate what was just said about the difficulty of of dreaming in that position of captivity and the length of time it would take to uh, find oneself into a dreamscape again. Um, That being said, here's what uh, comes to mind for me. Um, It's also related or swirling in my mind from the questions that were asked before about when, when redemption begins. And um, I think my response was redemption begins when one can imagine the possibility of, of redemption. Um, so just two related texts or thoughts to that. Rabbi um, Sarna, perhaps we studied this ages ago together. I'm not sure. Um, but the Kedusha's Levy on, on Asia Shir, uh, and um, the, the question that arises on Az Yashir is about or pertains to the oddity of the grammatical structure of Az being backwards and Yashir being forwards. We uh, suggest that uh, Israel actually composed the song of Yitziat excuse me, the song of Az while still in Mitzrayim, with the Amunah with the hope, with the anticipation that there would come a time when it would be appropriately sung. Um, A similar idea comes up with Miriam and her famous uh, timbrels and the the women dancing um, and um, Midrash that suggests, or that at least wonders where those instruments came from. After all, they left Bechi um, it's not obvious that the thing that you might take if you're leaving in a rush would be your instrument. Um, but the women are credited there for actually, again, having the anticipation, the amuna, the hope that there would come a time where they would need their instruments, where there would be occasion to sing and dance. So um, coming back to the, the question of uh, what might they be imagining? Um, I agree uh, with David Speed that um, they probably don't know at all what lies on the other side, but the but both of these ideas of both taking an instrument or composing poetry while still in a position of slavery, hoping that one day in some way, some unknown way, would be a time to sing, to dance, um, you know, to to recite poetry. Uh, that to me is again the the moment of hope. Um, and yeah, and, and and the vagueness of um, a dream not yet fulfilled, the shapes of which one couldn't even quite fathom.
0: And um, Dr. Russ Fishbean, and I want to want to pick up on this question to you, but I want to add in we got a great question in the comments. Isn't this question comparable to our own concepts or beliefs or dreams for a messianic age? Um, and so. Um, what do you think of the of the limitations of dreams or if if you were if you were standing in their sandals, uh, what would you be able to dream of um, and then standing in your own shoes today? Do you feel like those same maybe limitations um, apply to our own future redemption?
2: So um, that's an amazing question. Um, I, I think that's it. Um, there's a, there's a lot there, actually, in terms of the you know the we are we're constantly thinking about not just the past redemption uh, at the Seder night. We're also thinking about the future redemption. It starts at the very beginning right? when we talk about um, uh, what is it? Halachmania. This this is the right the bread of affliction, uh, which our forefathers ate, right? And then we say Hashatahacha. Uh, now it's now we're here, right? Shana next year we're going to be in the land of Israel. Um, now we are slaves. And next year we're going to be free people. We're not talking about being here in Israel. In we're talking about being here in the exile. And that's the language. That's why another reason why I think, excuse me, that Halachmania is in Aramaic. That's the language of the exile. We are, we are here. We're, we're here. Um, uh, we're, we're celebrating the past. And we're celebrating the future. And we're here in the present. Um, and that, that knowledge, of the, of the past redemption is the source, in a sense, um, you could think of, of, uh, of our optimism uh, that next year we're going to be in Jerusalem. That uh, the rabbis say, right? Benisan igalu, and manth nisan, the Israelites were redeemed. Tidin igael, and they're going to be redeemed once again at that time, as if to say, um, that's the source, the root of our optimism, that, that we, we, we were there once and we will be there again Um, wherever we are now so I think it's a beautiful uh, question and insight the part of the uh, person out there (laughs) Um, I actually had a slightly different thought about this more down to earth if I if I may in terms of um, you know how would I imagine what what freedom might look like Um, and uh, I I think about this in a a couple of different directions one is that because like maybe um a famous uh, speech that the, the Jew, Jewish-British philosopher Isaiah Berlin gave back in the 1950s um, called the uh, two liberties, right? There's the, the two different kinds of liberties. There's the negative liberty and there's a the positive liberty, right? Uh, one type of liberty is where we are uh, removed from our shackles and we can do as we please. And the other kind of liberty aspires for something else, of course, at the, at the time, he was uh, saying that as a critique of the of communist uh, idea that uh, you, you can be free um, in other ways than, than just your your negative liberty, just, just doing whatever you please. But I, I'd like to take that idea and think about that because you know, when, if I were a slave, and I, Baruch Hashem, I can't really imagine what that would be like. Uh, I don't really know. Um, it's the hardest mitzvah. Rav Soloveitchik said, all right, It's the hardest mitzvah of the year. Is is adam uh, We have to see ourselves as if we as if we were slaves and leaving Egypt. Uh, it's 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 impossible. Except we have to try and imagine imagine through enacting. Um, but uh, what what I think of when I think of that uh, uh, imagined future uh, uh, is is more the negative freedom, um, the freedom to no longer be. Uh, shackled by, right, to no longer be bound or beholden to anyone other than myself um, and maybe even human nature being what it is to aspire to a kind of power that deprived, that was deprived, uh, that 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 you were deprived of for so long, right? Um, in other words, um, to imagine yourself in, in a kind of, um, as now in a position of, um, of power over one's destiny, of power over one's uh, choices, and maybe over power over others. Uh, I think that uh, there's something in the, the laws of the Torah that, that uh, understands human nature um, being, being what it is, and anticipated this. Uh, in fact, uh, Nechama Leibowitz, a blessed memory, ha- asked this question on Mishpatim why are the first sort of extensive laws after the Decalogue, right? The first extensive laws, they begin with the laws of slavery. What's going on there? Why, why, of all things to start with? And she, she says this beautiful comment that actually the Torah is, is, is extremely sort of, uh, it plums the depths of the human psyche. That uh, in a sense, the first instinct that we might have as free people is to then um, uh, reverse that power dynamic over others. And um, the first law that we have to be given is how to um, how to, 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 to set our our Hebrew slaves free. And, they, and actually back in the what is it the fourth um, the fourth commandment, uh, it says that that uh, right that your non-Jewish slaves, non-Hebrew slaves, uh, um, they all have to have to rest one day a week, just like you rest, to treat them as human beings, to 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 accord them a right a, a, a dignity. Uh, as human beings, not that not, uh, they're sort of uh, subject to whatever power you wish to subject them to. So there's something I think to that in the sense that, um, uh, number one, I think that the Torah asks the people of Israel to imagine themselves not as just sort of free to do as they wish, but to become Avdei Hashem, to become subject to a higher law. And number two, to internalize the dignity of others to the point that when you have that freedom, you use it as an opportunity to learn self-control and even compassion and empathy for those in that position. So I I think that's maybe um, a little bit of of the the darker side of what it might mean to to envision oneself free and, and maybe how the Torah tries to counteract that in its own way.
0: Yeah, when I was thinking about this question, I was wondering whether when Paro enslaves the people, right, he's, he's very clear about what he's afraid of, right, the Torah says, um, pen your bed, there's going to be so many of them, Vayaki there'll be a war, banu they'll join in with our enemies, and they'll um, and they'll fight against us, it's a little bit unclear, kind of exactly what that means, but my grandfather suggests that maybe it means they'll they'll rise up and take over. Um, and that actually what Paro was afraid of was that he would lose power and it would, Egypt would become like an Israelite state, um, which is a pretty amazing idea and dream and something that you could imagine in vengeance, you would absolutely kind of dream of. And if Paro had the ability to dream of it, you sort of wonder whether it, his his vision and his his reasoning for the enslavement would be enough to instill maybe actually this like counter hope and dream of like, let's prove him wrong. Uh, so that, that was sort of just a thought I had to throw into the mix there. I want to, I want to move on to the plagues because it's still sort of relevant. Um, and I mentioned, I mentioned uh, just a minute ago, my grandfather, Professor Nahum Sarna. So when he talks about the plagues in his commentary, he he describes it as Um, there's a mysterious silence of the Israelites. We actually don't really hear from them. We see a lot of Paro, we see a lot of Moshe, we see some Aron, we see how the plagues are manifesting, how they're maybe affecting the Egyptians, but we don't see what the Israelites are doing during that time. And in fact, in the text itself, out of 10 plagues, only five of them are described as not affecting the Israelites. Only five out of ten didn't affect them in the text of the Torah, um, and so I'm wondering: um, What do you think it was like when the plagues began? Did the Israelites, did our ancestors, did they feel safe? Did they feel terrified? What did they understand the purpose of the plagues to be? What was happening during that time? What kind of transition are we to imagine was was happening there? And um, on the senior night, we we the, the plagues are almost like fun or like child's play or like oh now we're finally doing an activity, um, but we all know <laughs> plague is not some kind of like fun we're finally doing an activity sort of event, um, and yet there's this the mysterious silence in the text. So so what's beneath the mysterious the mysterious silence, um, Dr. Coleman? Do you want to take this one first?
3: Yeah. Um- so my instinct on this is, and it's so hard to think about this question without thinking about the last couple of years, um, people are so good at compartmentalizing. Um, and I, I remember like, you know, the, the, the weeks in February 2020, like before when it was clear the pandemic was on its way, but before it quite got here, there is this sense of like, it's this thing that's happening somewhere else. And then like, all of a sudden it wasn't, all of a sudden it was here. And I feel like that... Um, for for many like kind of global events, whether it's plagues or global warming or you know or frogs, <laughs> whatever it is, like there there is that same sense of like it, you try as much as possible to to maintain a normalcy um, until you can't anymore. Um, I think you see this today too. You know, um, in you know in recent uh, terror attacks in in Israel and you know the attack today in New York, there's a sense of like people try as much as possible to maintain a sense of normalcy even when things that are not normal are happening. Very, very close to them because otherwise it can be so um, uh, um, disorienting or it can be so destabilizing. Um, so people people try try to hold on to that even when, like, right next door, is something something awful and terrible is happening. Uh,
0: Doctor Rusbashvili, do you want to
2: chime in? Sure. Um, I, I really appreciate that that point. Uh, is it David or David's fee? Havitsvi, yeah. I really appreciate that point because it's um it's I feel this all the time when I think about what's going on in Ukraine. Um that um I, I feel the sense of shame, of guilt, of not thinking about it more, of not um reading more or um having it more in my in my in my mind or or doing more, whatever I can do. Um, because I know that there are people that are really suffering. And and you know how do you go on and compartmentalize it you know, in that that reality and, and live your life like normal and on the other hand, um, Rabbi Bahia ibn Pakuda the author of the Famos uh the duties of the heart um, right is uh, talking about the Islamic world there you go there's our reference <laughs> um, he talks about the different some sort of hidden blessings um, in in, in in our natural selves, the the blessings that God gives us that we don't even notice. Um, He talks about uh, things, some things that make us so human, things like our ability to remember and our ability to forget um, that uh, are sort of unique to us as human beings, that we, um, and what what is the blessing of forgetting? In a sense that if if we remember the pain all the time, then I think it would be uh, paralyzing and, uh, but yes, I think compartmentalizing is, is a natural instinct, but it's also, a, in a sense, a necessity. That said, it kind of took, the way that I think about this um, is, about this question of, of the plagues is, you know, we, I think very much in in in, um, uh, in in a similar sense of what it means to witness other people suffer. Uh, because, yes, I mean, I, it, it's a it's a very important point. Uh, I mean, it's not that you made up of your grandfather, uh, a blessed memory, of that, that who's actually my father's teacher. Uh, we've talked about this as uh, a very special connection. Um, that, that maybe not all of them were, it doesn't say that they did, didn't experience all of them. But the impression that I get is that, you know, the plagues happened to the Egyptians and the people of Israel were witnesses to it. And so really the kind of the question for me is more, what does it mean to be a witness to other people's suffering? And, and in particular, the suffering of those who were your persecutors. Um, what, does, what, what does that mean for us to witness that? A um, very interesting line in Pirkei Avot that uh, of, um, what is it? Uh, Shmuel HaKatan says, uh, right? Everybody's quoted for, for different things that they say. And what is Shmuel HaKatan quoted for? <inaudible> Your, when, you're, when your enemy falls, don't rejoice. The Problem is, that, I mean, that's a verse. It's a verse. From, it's a verse from Mishlei. What what is, what do you mean to quote him? It's like me. It's like somebody quoting me for quoting a verse. You know, uh, uh, Elisha said, "You know, Bara Well, what's the what's the addition there? But I think I mean, Rav Kook actually makes this point that he was the one chosen to uh, to formulate the bracha that uh, those or mean name if you're a Sephardic. Different uh, different versions uh, um, of the prayer uh, that uh, that, th- that those among the Jewish people who are who are uh, um, who plot against the, the, their own people right should not should not come to a good end. Um, but that this uh, that that prayer needed to be says Rav Koch, needed to be formulated by someone who didn't rejoice in the downfall of other people um, in order to make it pure to make it uh, more about rejoicing and not being. Uh, and in their, in their hands and their clutches, as it were, rather than rejoicing at their downfall. So it's actually, I think this is where the rabbis step in in some ways. Um, number one is we have the, um, um, the, the famous midrash that is cited by the Beit Yosef um, on, on, in the discussion about the, uh, the Haggadah, where he says that the, um, uh, that, 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 that's why there's a custom to take out some of the wine when you're reciting the plagues so that we don't rejoice completely, right? The wine is a symbol of our, not only our freedom, but also of our rejoicing. And that we take a little bit out as a way of um, indicating that our, our, rejoice, our, our joy isn't complete when anyone is suffering. So that's one, I think, uh, answer that, uh, that the rabbis give. And another sort of variation of that is the famous Mizrash, that when, um, that during the plague of darkness, right? The Mitzrayim couldn't move for three days. Um, but they somehow survived. The Midrash asks, you know, where do they where, how did they survive? It says that the, the people of Israel came into their houses and helped them with what they needed. They helped them, you know, eat and, and drink. And these are their persecutors, you know. But um, there's something I think there for us to think about in terms of uh, what it means to witness other people suffering, even when they may do suffer. Uh, our human as long as we have that humanity to see the suffering in others, uh, that's a sign already uh, that, that we are free people. And uh, this also maybe reminds me a little bit of, honestly, um, Viktor Frankl in, in his Man's Search for Meaning, when he talks about, you know, what was that quality that allowed the, certain people in the camps to go on and not, be, you know, live the living dead, as he called it. And he says that, that it was the ability to think of a purpose beyond your physical survival that paradoxically allowed you to survive. The ability to see others, almost like the, the the rasha is, you know, wouldn't have been redeemed because he was motziyah. That's moim because he didn't participate in the uh, in the in the suffering of others. He separated himself out. I think as long as we can see, uh, witness, and, and take it to heart, um, I, I think then, then then that's where the redemption is, is real. So I, I uh, that's my my little thought on that question of, of witnessing other people's plagues.
0: Um. Uh, now, now to the editor of the the Torah and the time of plagues. Um,
1: uh, I believe smoke there, please. To address the same question. Yeah, um, can you repeat it?
0: <laughs> sure. Yeah. So there's a there's a mysterious silence in oh, the yes. Torah of, of what what were what was Amisrael thinking when these plagues were happening?
1: Right. Okay. Um, thank you. Um, Thank you for the question, but also for yeah for pausing there to notice that it's not really something that I've I've thought much about before. Um, but I, I guess that in contrast to the to the comments thus far about compartmentalization, um, I kind of imagine it um, not being compartmentalized. It actually. Um, a great deal of fear on the part of the Jewish people about what's coming for them next. Um, and I wonder about um, the final one um, and the externalization of, right, what is a Jewish home? Which ones shall be passed over? I wonder if that is in some way what the Jewish people needed at the end when it's hitting its climax. What they need is actually something um, physical, something visible that can help them perhaps um, either remember or trust in their uh, difference of, the, of their face. And so it seems to me that actually um, it would be most natural for them perhaps not to compartmentalize, but actually to see themselves perhaps as, um, as vulnerable in the same way. Um, there was something else I wanted to say though, related to what was just said, um, but I will have to come back to it. Sorry.
0: (laughs) That is totally fine. I would like to, um, turn our conversation now to, um, to reparations, um, reparations or like leaving Egypt with great wealth was promised to Abraham at, the the covenant of the pieces. Um, and then it's promised to Moshe again at the burning bush. Um, and then it actually happens in the, in the, 12th, in the Exodus 12. Um, and I guess, you know, reparations, um, not particularly like this year, but in general have been sort of a hot topic in the United States uh, in, recent, in recent times. Um, and um, the Talmud, when it discusses these reparations in, in Sanhedrin 91a, it imagines the Egyptians suing the Jews in um, Alexander the Great's court, which is just a really fun, fun thing to imagine. And they say, you know, it says in, in Exodus 12, it says that, that you borrowed them from us. You asked, you asked to borrow them. So we would like them back. Uh, we would like the wealth back is what the Egyptians say. And um, the Jewish response is sort of like, okay, well, if that was a loan, then we would like back pay for all of the hundreds of years of slavery and for this number of people. And it says that the Egyptians requested some time to talk amongst themselves and they come back. And and then they, they sort of like never come back. And also that they like leave behind all their property and it was a Shemitah year. So everyone was excited because they had actually grown stuff in their land. And so there was food to eat that year. But it does seem like, and I'd be interested to hear, if you're familiar with that, uh, the Gemara and Sanhedrin 91a um, and, and loads of other texts also that, that are sort of, ex- there's a certain ambivalence there. On the one hand, you didn't pay us. And on the other hand, this thing that the Torah describes is not payment um, and that there's a certain ambivalence about, about collection of payment here. Um, so what... You know, if you if you were if you were there, would you have wanted payment, or would you have run out <laughs> out of fear? You know, because there's something about what you what you just said um, of of um, like always this fear of like what's gonna come next. So if I steal from them on the way out, have I have I left in safety or or not? Um, and so maybe, you know, if you were there, would you, would you have gone and taken anything? Um, but then, but then also like, is it right? Should we go after Egypt today and request all the extra money? Um, so I, a discussion of reparations and perhaps, um, perhaps this time we'll start with, um, uh, with, uh, Rabbi Dr. Smoker.
1: Okay. Um, I recall now what I wanted to say before, I'm going to weave it in, um, to this and um, I think that the question of, of reparations is related to some of the themes of vengeance that were discussed, um, right? Do we deserve back pay? Should we demand that from, from our oppressors and the instinct to push in that direction? Um, and as uh, Dr. Russ points out before, the way in which the, the Torah itself seems to try to mitigate against that going forward. Um, tries to encourage a different kind of discourse where we don't actually um, have to mete out suffering on others just because we ourselves experienced suffering. Um, so that's one way of saying that um, to the degree that reparations here um, are seen as, again, a kind of payback, um, I would like to imagine and I see in the rabbi's ambivalence, a desire to imagine an alternate picture, one that doesn't try to um, take out uh, our hostility on on the Egyptians, but actually finds a different way forward. Um, And I just want to share an insight that I heard today as well. Unfortunately, I don't remember the source that it was sourced in, Um, but it was a a beautiful read of Shoch Hamatra, which I gather is not physical repayments, but as its own kind of um, seeking of vengeance. And um, it is suggested that perhaps one way of understanding Shvok is both to recognize the deep human, the humanness of the desire for payback, the humanness of perhaps seeking out vengeance, and the recognition, though, that it's not actually within our hands to meet out. And that Shvok is a way of both acknowledging um, that desire and also giving it to God, so to speak. You do that, God you take care of that, whatever that means. But we people down below, we will not act out of vengeance and we will not pay it forward um, in these negative ways. So um, that's not a direct response to questions about property, um, but I think thematically, at least, it it speaks to some of the issues at play. Yeah,
0: Dr. Kalman, thoughts on reparations?
1: You know,
3: I think in, in any kind of abusive relationship when one party eventually leaves, there's a, a, a kind of desire to say, like, I never want to talk to that person or that community again. Like, I'm done. Um, even if, you know, even for them to say sorry, even for them to, like, do the right thing. And, you know, sometimes that works, um, but sometimes it's actually impossible. Like, sometimes, like, circumstances are such that you actually can't get away from your oppressor, even if you are not in the oppressive relationship anymore. Um, I, you know, I'm thinking on this about um, the, the kind of really fierce debate in Israel in the 1950s around reparations from Germany, where, you know, there's one faction that's saying like, of course, like, we just accepted like half a million, uh, you know, Holocaust refugees, like, of course, we're going to take Germany's money. And the other people saying like, never in a million years would I want anything to do with that country whatsoever. And obviously, like, the, rep- the reparation side wins out, but if there's like this huge riots, like it's, it's, a, it's a huge um, debate. And it's... Um, it's so it's so tricky. Um, I think when with Egypt in particular, it's funny because like on the one hand, like we celebrate you know leaving Egypt, but then if you look at like the next you know how many thousand years, it's not like Jews ever stop having a relationship with Egypt. Like Jews are constantly in Egypt. Like they're if you like up until the twentieth century, like. Their the relationship with Egypt is in some ways like there's like it's it's like comparable to the relationship with Israel in terms of like the kind of population like the center of culture like the kind of I- the ideas that come out of Egypt like there's so much there so um, so it's it's never so simple um, like in in real life the stories they always have like these multiple steps and so in that context reparations is is important because you kind of have to turn a page um, and in some ways kind of like giving um, Giving a name or giving giving like an amount to to that um, to that change can can do some good, even if it doesn't doesn't repair everything but allows there to be a kind of relationship
1: moving forward. Uh,
0: Thank you. Um, I actually want to want to move on to a different, a slightly different question, or a different question maybe altogether. But that same night when the the reparations were were extracted, um, is also the night of of Pesach uh, Mitzrayim. is also the night when when people were were eating their the first ever Paschal lamb on matzah with maror, and um, and they were painting the doors of their their homes and. Um, what, I, what, I, what I'm wondering from you, Dr. Russ Fishbane, is if you were at, sitting at the head of the table that night, what, what, what's the conversation? What are you telling your children? How are you trying to make sense of what's about to happen, what you think is about to happen, what you've heard, rumor, this, that, the other, why you're doing all the things that you're doing? Like describe your, your Pesach Mitzrayim Seder night.
2: Right. Thank you. It's, it's very um, sort of an exhilarating question, right? To think about um, what that first night, that first seder, might have looked like. I mean, it's an extraordinary um, idea. It, it goes back to to what Rabbi Dr. Smokler was talking about at the beginning, right? This uh, position of uh, Beit Shemai, uh, or uh, uh, Shemai, or, or Beit Shemai. I don't. I, Beit Shemai. Yeah, um, that uh, that the nighttime was was also, in a sense, um, in a part of the redemption, that that emed Vemuna aspect, that um, that it's the, it's the truth on faith, um, that it's coming. Uh, what what that you know, I, you know, it, it comes back to another question, which is, you know, why we celebrate the, the Seder at night in general. Uh, what, what why is it a night holiday, right? If the if we left in the morning, um, so what? What's that first that night? You know, uh, sound like? What does it look like? Um, I, I, in a sense, so what does it mean to celebrate the reality of leaving before you left? Uh, when, when there's a sense of um, uh, that, that, that. That also, I think, to kind of come back to um, um, to the sense of um of Of the fact that the um, that the 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 first seder right is sort of the model seder for the future in the sense that it's 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 it starts in the home with the family right um, um, what is the um, what is the significance of of that aspect of it also um, so the the way that I sort of uh, i don't know begin to imagine this um, a, a, this 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 idea is um is to think uh, again about maybe um the um the the idea of um, that that the, the sort of the the purpose um or the significance of that moment is in the understanding that uh, that they were um. They were developing, in a sense, their, their destiny, um, which is both a national destiny uh, and a family uh, tradition. And uh, something about that, that experience, which is the, the fact that, um, that they are being born, in a sense, as a people that night, but that birth happens differently for each and every family, for each and every um, group or cohort. right? Um, and I think that that, that um, in a sense, is really at the heart of the way in which the whole, which the Torah itself you know, uh, um, it basically tells us what's gonna happen, that your children are going to ask you. It doesn't say that, you know, next generations are gonna ask, it's your children. There's something about that, that first night, which models for us all other nights, all of the generations uh, experience for the Seder night, Which is that there is a um, a very profound way in which the the Jewish people um, is is rooted in in this family dynamic, this family drama uh, where the the children take their place, where the children begin to become uh, part of the dialogue, where the story includes them. And so I think that, um, that that's part of what's, you know, it had to be done in the home, you couldn't leave your home. Um, the, the redemption started with the family sort of awareness that we're starting something grand, um, but that how you create something grand is not on a grand stage, it's not sort of like a, like a political act. You start something grand by doing the small act of teaching your children of modeling for your children and allowing your children to ask and become part of that, that, uh, that, that saga, that, that story. That's a little bit of what I think about uh, uh, just to get us started.
0: Yeah, so Dr. Coleman, you, you have actually um, written a children's book about Passover. Um, and, and I wonder, like, what, what's, the, what's the message or the, or the idea or the theme behind the children's book that you would have read at your um, Pesach Mitzrayim Seder? um should you should you have been there and had the opportunity
3: oh wow oh oh now my my wheels are turning. like what would that look like that would be fascinating um you know i i i agree with a lot of what dr russ Fishman said um and it's i feel like so much of what you do as a parent is 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 providing context for your kids and there's also this sense of um of both wanting to impart to children a sense of history like a sense that um giving them a past and like a a kind of lived memory past that they wouldn't have otherwise but then at the same time um kind of withholding certain things as well and i think like especially in that moment um when you have like a generation that has lived its entire life in slavery speaking to a generation that's about to live its entire life free it's so critical to think like how do I? How do I make sure I actually I like have my Masora and my like anti-Masora, like the things I the things I want to transmit and the things I I totally don't. And like th- that's something which is I, I think it's hard today. Like you know certainly lots of people are, are struggle with like you know how do I make sure like I you know I raise the kids with the things I like, but like if I had suffering, I don't want to impart that to my kids. Um, that feels like something that people that struggle people never leave, um, and it's so difficult. Um, it's it's a sense of like. Kind of w- necessarily withholding yourself a little bit um but honestly isn't that what storytelling is about like is it about like making sure deciding which parts of the story are worth telling and which parts aren't um so like crafting that story feels like the kind of the first step in a way to to well not maybe one of the steps to
1: redemption
0: um i'm going to turn to you uh doctor Lou Smokler, and i actually want to tie it into a question that just came in through the chat from Rabbi Michael Latz, I wonder how we teach these stories and don't pass along intergenerational trauma. Mm-hmm. And I wanna imagine in addition to that, right? What's going on? So we've been talking about the home and the Seder table of Pasach Mitzrayim, but like outside of the home is like insane, right? Because <laughs> speaking <laughs> of vengeance, mm-hmm. um, which is where you where you were taking us in your in your last answer, mm-hmm. right? Outside of the home is the, the Mashri. Um, and so not only, I wanna add to the question about not passing long intergenerational trauma is also a question of how would you contextualize the, the trauma that is even being lived mm-hmm. um, while you're kind of sheltering in place, let's say um, at, at your own Pesach Mitzrayim see there.
1: Okay, so um, hello, Michael, I love your question. Um, it's certainly as a parent, uh, I feel like I, I live it um, and I don't have I, I have yet to figure it out um, but let me step back for a moment um, and just relate directly to what Sarna just said about um, right, what's going on inside and what's going on outside and the contrast between those two things um, and beautiful beautiful things have already been said about the kind of centrality of, of the home front and what that means for the the redemption and the stories we tell and the kind of culture that we're building. Um, But I I guess I just want to focus for a moment on the contrast itself as having significance. And it seems to me that um, that is a theme that is central to the celebration of Pesach as well as the story of Pesach. And that is the way in which we bring opposites together and somehow try to Live with them. So I mean that both very literally, ritually, um, bringing together, you know, the maror and the chazeret, and you know, making sure that we dig whether right the karpas, which is a sign of rejuvenation and spring, but we also put it in the tears of the Jewish people. Um, And so we're we're never far from joy, and we're never far from suffering. Um, and that seems to somehow be an integral part of the story itself, um, that we somehow have to learn how to live, perhaps um, with the, the war- warmth on the inside and chaos on the outside, or um, proximity to death and hope for rebirth all at the same time. Um, I'm thinking also about um, this particular calendrical year, and the, the way in which um, we are this, in the Jewish calendar, I'm, I'm referring to the fact that it's been a, a, it is a leap year and we've had two others. Um, and this brings to mind um, an essay I love um, from the Pachad Yitzchak, Rav Huttner, um, who, um, who asks a kind of halachic question about this About why it is that when there are two months of Adar, we celebrate Purim in the second and not the first. And he suggests that it's because we always have to maintain the proximity of Purim and Pesach, which he understands to mean two different kinds of revelation or two different kinds of experiences he says the two different Anochi's, the Anochi of Purim, of Anochi HaSter HaSdir Panai, and the Anochi of Pesach, of Anochi HaShemalopecha asher HaTziticha, which is to say that uh, even when we try to cultivate the consciousness of Pesach, which is understood here to mean a consciousness of a divine, of a revealed face of God that, excuse me, that interacts um, in, in Jewish history um, and actually right, performs great miracles, um, even as we lean into that, we have to keep close by the um, anuchi of haster astir, the hiddenness of God, the God who doesn't save in big and dramatic ways, the God who operates behind the scenes, does not announce God's self. Um, that's a long way of saying that sitting at a Seder or sitting at Pasach Mitzrayim, is, is sitting in is, is about, in some ways, a performance of this, I would say, a performance of contrasts, a performance of dual consciousness, consciousnesses, um, figuring out how we might um, somehow. Learn to again kind of anticipate redemption, even as um, we learn how to navigate these murky spaces. Um, and uh, yeah, and it seems to me that beyond Pesach Hitznaim in our own in our own Pesach Sedarim, we are similarly asked to keep close. Um, again, both joy and suffering, revelation and hiddenness, all of that um, is present for us as well.
0: I want to turn to discuss um, refugees. It's been a very live subject, um, particularly with so many people fleeing Ukraine and our communities um, and the state of Israel mobilizing to um, provide support, take people in, um, and uh, so many people kind of going on missions to Poland and, and border countries to, to help out. Um, the, the exodus created in its own way a refugee crisis. You have an entire people who are now refugees. Um, and we know a little bit about how they feel kind of, right? They sing a song. We spoke about Azia Sheer and, and the preparation for that and the bringing their timbrels. But I, I, don't, I, want, I wonder whether there's kind of more to dig into this idea that, that yes, we left and now we are refugees. And is that a is that a win? I guess is part of what um, is what I'm wondering about. Um, so maybe we'll start with Dr. Coleman. You
3: know, um, I think there's there's times in history and there's times in people's lives when it feels like the kind of the natural rhythms have have kind of come unstuck, and the things that you're used to, whether they're good or bad, are just kind of not present anymore, um, and that can feel terrifying. Um, um you know, I think there's times i i i've heard recently um you know uh, in the opening days of the ukraine war there is there's is, um weeks in which decades happen um and I feel like that the kind of the the moment of leaving egypt um is one of those times and in in moments like that um it's it's very hard to kind of gain a sense uh it, it's very hard to regain the rhythm um, I'm just kind of like Thinking out loud, maybe, you know, one of the the first mitzvot you have in um, in, in Sefer Shemot is around like, Rosh Chodesh, right? Be, like it, maybe there's a kind of a conscious attempt to kind of give people a new sense of time or like a new way of regulating time beyond that, because in those moments of like those in between spaces, um, you can kind of feel like you're you're kind of floating in nowhere. So maybe there, maybe there's something there, but I haven't I haven't really thought it through.
0: Yeah. Um... Uh, Dr. S. Fishbein, thoughts on, on the Israelite refugee crisis?
2: Yeah, um, so I, this is a re- really uh, fascinating sort of question to think about. Uh, really, um, uh, in part because you know we we t- we we think about it. I think this the the leaving of Mitzrayim more in terms of you know we we're um, we're leaving exile. We're going home. Um, on the other hand, you know is, Egypt was the only home that the Israelites ever knew. And um, the exile itself, I mean over many generations of Jewish history, uh, the Jewish people with their sort of lived with this split mindset that they were um that they were in exile, but that 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 exile could become a second homeland um, and, I mean, we have some, some beautiful poetry, actually, of I think one example that comes to mind is, like um, the, 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 the poetry of two Ibn Ezra's. Um, one is uh, Avram Ibn Ezra, the other one is Moshe Ibn Ezra. Um, the more well-known one, maybe you'll start with, just uh, as long as it's, they're coming, coming to mind, this, this famous uh, poem of his, Aha, Yarad, Arsfarad, Amina Shemaim. Um, that, oh, uh, whoa, evil has descended um, upon Spain from the heavens, which of course is a, itself a kind of an echo of, of the rabbinic uh, dictum that says that, Ein that evil doesn't descend from heaven. Evil comes from earth, not from heaven. Uh, but, but he says that evil has descended. Uh, to, and, and, and what is it that, that um, how does he describe He describes each community that's been devastated by the Al- Almohads, he describes it, um, in, in loving terms, that this was, this city was the place of, of these incredible people and this wonderful community and, and, and uh, these families. And he names people and places lovingly. Um, and and this city of the Jews talks about uh, all these different places. And, and he himself went out into exile from Spain. Uh, he went out as a refugee in uh, Christian Europe. All these commentaries that we read of al and Ezra, he wrote in his wanderings. Um, he wrote at, as a refugee. In one of his comments, and uh, on 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 uh, his way, he wrote about the pain of refugees. He talked about the importance of supporting refugees because they have no one else to support them. Um, they have no uh, they're no anchor. They're they're they're, they're wanderers. So he, he knew that from his own experience. And and he talked about that the place that was a Jewish exile also as as a, as a home. And uh, the other Ibn Ezra, Moshe Ibn Ezra, talks. Uh, I talked to him when he when he he had to leave even earlier from the Al- Al- um, before the Aml-Hads. uh, He had to leave Granada, and he left for the for the Christian North. And all these poems that um, in in his in his um, uh, secular verse have these sort of echoes of if I forget the old Granada, right. Um, which and, and 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 similar kinds of language that recall his keynote over Yerushalayim, he uses in his in his secular verse to describe the places that he left in Spain. So there is a split mindset there. Um, that it's on the one hand it's our exile, on the other hand it's our it's our home. It's the, and it's really our only home. So that 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 I think is a. Um, uh, it, it takes time. I think and really for the, for the refugees themselves. Um, there's no need to remember to take seriously what it means to be a refugee because you're living the experience. I think what, where it comes home for me is the fa- how much emphasis the Torah places on the next generation internalizing right, that experience. The next generation have to learn, have to ask, have to become a part of that experience. And the way the rabbis talk about, you know, every person has to envision him or herself as if each one of us left Mitzrayim, all right, uh, it's it's everything we do. It's like we're we're, we're enacting something. This this, this beautiful Socratic practices of of standing up and putting the sack on your shoulder and walking. You know, where are you going from? Uh, where are you leaving? I'm leaving Mitzrayim. Where are you going to? I'm going to Jerusalem. They're, and they walk around the table. That that what what's going on there? I mean, we we we. It's something that happened in the past. It's a it's a painful experience. It's a trauma. Why are we trying to um, to, to remember that experience of being a refugee. Um, uh, I think that that's a uh, part of that is uh, maybe two answers to that that I would think of. One is is uh, connected to, to maror, why it is that we have to taste the maror. That if you swallow matzah and you don't taste it, you fulfilled your mitzvah. But if you swallow maror and you don't taste the bitterness, you haven't fulfilled your mitzvah. You have to taste the maror. You have to not only remember the good, you have to experience and remember the, what was terrible as well, and and, and, and experience it together. Um, I think part of the the, the, the reason for that is a second aspect that I was kind of thinking of, uh, ahead to, which is um, where the Torah wants us to go with that consciousness. When it says, you know, famously, et uh, you know the soul of the sojourner of a stranger, right? Uh, because you were one of them. You're right, uh, you have to take care of the poor and the uh, and the and the and the widow and so on. Why? Because it was right. Uh, 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 what is it? Uh, um, Alkin, right? Uh, it was for this reason um, that that God did this for you, so that you treat the, um, the the vulnerable people in your midst the same way. Um, there's something I think about the pain of of that experience of leaving uh, with nothing. Of, of leaving our, uh, the only home that we ever knew um, and, and taking with us the trauma of that bondage, that, 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 that we have to remember that too because the next generation forgets. And we need to remember it because if we don't remember it, then we're not going to live it for the people that, that are living it now. That's, uh, that's my, my thought on that. Um,
0: yeah, um, Rabbi Dr. Lee Smogler, uh. I'd love to I'd love to like keep drilling into this, uh, this idea that when they left they immediately became refugees. And you're you're the one who spoke previously about Oz about Yashir and about how they had almost like prepared for this moment. Do you think that they were almost disappointed? Mm-hmm. Or do you think that this was exactly what they had hoped for?
1: Um it's interesting to consider the Jewish people as refugees. Um, I think that, you know, the, the stories that we have in the Torah tell us clearly that yes, they were disappointed. Yes, they were afraid. Yes, they were whiny and hungry and thirsty and um, had a lot of longing for home. Um, so, yes, as you share a moment, um, and then it goes. Um, and I think. It speaks to the earliest question we talked about tonight, which is sort of the, the beginning of redemption and maybe the pacing of redemption that uh, David Sve talked about it takes time and it is by no means a linear process. Um, and it's something I kind of love about all those stories in the desert is that it actually just gives voice precisely to right, the difficulty of freedom um, and the pains of leaving home, even when that home has been an oppressive home, um, I'm been struck in the past week or so. Even there's been coverage in the in the papers about people returning to Ukraine, people who left who are who are going home. And when asked why, it's so simple. How could you return to a place that's being bombarded? And the answer is because it's home. Because it's home. Um, And so that the state of being a refugee is so profoundly destabilizing and so awful in so many ways that, yes, a return home makes all the sense in the world. And so the Jewish people didn't have that option. Um, They dreamt of it. They longed for it. And I understand that. I understand very much that the situation of in-betweenness that they inhabited, not for a day or two or a week or a month, but for years, um, would have been um, its own difficulty, its own challenge. Um, one, of course, that you know, presumably, uh, you know, God, God took them in this indirect way for a reason. It seems maybe that they needed forty years to, um, to flourish, to become new people, to not be refugees, but to find a new home. Um, but I'm sympathetic to uh, to the journey itself, and I appreciate you. Kind of focusing us there.
0: So for the last question I'm going to ask you all to really keep your answers to like two to three minutes. Um, <laughs> I know it's hard, it's very very hard. Um, So it sort of seems like the story ought to not end with like this group of refugees wandering in the desert. Um, And I'm wondering um, if you were, if you were, if you were the crafter of the Haggadah, if you were, if you were sitting at that cedar in B'nai Brak telling, you know, in post-temple times, trying to piece together, like, how do we tell this story going forward? Where would you imagine that the story ends? With what event or, or, or message or theme, what is redemption? And, and when does it come to fruition? Um, and maybe um, uh, Rabbi Dr. Leib Smulder, will will start with you.
1: I don't know if I'm gonna stand by this in two minutes from now, but here's just something that comes to mind for me. Um, the idea, sorry, I'm remembering um, also David. I think you, you mentioned, something before about um, a miracle that kind of didn't present itself as such to the people or the way that they switched. Remind me what the reference was. And I wrote, it's just like the Jewish people at Sinai. Um, So I just want to go there for a moment and say that something really extraordinary that happens is, of course, Revelation at Sinai. And maybe that's the moment um, that. You might want to kind of pull the curtain and say, see, now they're free. They've arrived at Sinai. But of course, we know that that goes south um, and um, it is not pure joy, but actually the moment of, of um, well, a different kind of freedom, and that is the freedom to sin. So that's what I'm not sure I want to stand by in five minutes from now, but at least I'll consider it as a provocation um, for us to, to think about Um what if what if the story of the Jewish people or what if part of their freedom was actually um, yeah, the, the freedom to to sin, the freedom to not be coerced, bitahti um, tahar, you know, under the mountain as the Midrash imagines them standing at Sinai in a in a coerced place potentially, Um, but what if part of their liberation was actually the spiritual freedom to um, experiment, I suppose, uh, with other ways of being, and they will pay a price, no doubt, Um, but there's something wild about that moment um, that is just really striking. So, I wouldn't want the, Haggad, the Haggadah to end there. I don't think it's the end of the Jewish story. Um, but I do think it's a moment on the way that is worth thinking about when we consider the different varieties of freedom that the exodus provided. All right, uh, Dr.
0: Kalman, in, in three, yeah. in, in three oh, minutes. I love that idea.
3: So I want to play with it that maybe it's the freedom to have redemption be boring. And here's an idea, which I just thought of. you can tell me if it works or not. Um, you have four cups of wine. They respond to like the, the four, like Lushna Gula. And you can imagine, like, why do you need four languages of Gula? I mean, perhaps because Gula comes in degrees, you know, and there's different kinds of Gula. And um, think for a second about how the mindset that you are in in the Seder when you drink each of those four cups is extremely different right? Like the first cup you drink and you're like, wow, the seder's starting. I'm so excited. And then like you wait and you're like going through market and you're both excited, but you're also like, I am starving and I want to have something. And then the second cup comes and you're like, this is amazing. This is the best cup. Like, you know, and that's like the best one. And then you have your full meal. And then the third cup comes and you're like, Okay, like I, I'm kind of done. And then the fourth thing I was like, oh my God, I forgot that there was another cup. And like, that's the one, at least in my family, like everyone just drinks grape juice. It's like, I, I can't handle this anymore. So like that freedom to kind of go from like, I am so excited about this to actually like finding it um, kind of a, a, like a pain or like a bit of a drag, like maybe that's what redemption
0: is. Wow, okay. These were not answers I was anticipating. Um,
2: I love it, Dr. Rose Fishman. Okay, um, uh, so from the ridiculous to sublime, maybe no, no, no. but I, I mean, I, I think that I, I, I want to take us back to maybe to the Haggadah a little bit and to think about, um, you know, why is it that the central text that the rabbis choose to tell the story is not the story from Exodus? It's a story from the Mikra Bikurim, right? The story where you bring the first fruits, and and you tell the story, and you get and you what do you do? You 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 bring your Thanksgiving, right? You bring your first fruits, and you say, you know, thank you for um, for allowing me to go through this 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 cauldron of of exile to be able to have this uh, this deeper gratitude for every gift that I have. I think about that in the context of you know um why the the uh, the gemara tells us that we're supposed to go uh, begin with the uh, right we're supposed to start with our lowliness, and then you would think that we would end with our freedom but it doesn't end with our freedom i think where it ends is with our gratitude with the praise of god with our ability to to praise and our ability to give thanks i think that's really where, where the story where the story ends with where, where the um yeah, you know, if there is an end, um, it's where we are transformed and we become the kind of people who know how to praise, know how to, to give thanks. And I think there's something very deep there that the, the rabbis uh, were onto by structuring the Haggadah in that way and by kind of giving us that signpost. That that's where we're headed. Um, we know where we came from. Where are we going? That's, that's where we're going. We want to end up in a place of Shevach and with Hallel.
0: Um, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna round this out with, with my own answer, which is that I think the freedom is the freedom to craft our own stories and to tell our own narratives and to tell them in our own ways that are resonant to our own times and our own families and the people around the table and the people in the zoom room. And, um, there's, there's a story that people tell about you. And then there's the story that you have the freedom to tell about yourself to your children, and your, please God, grandchildren, and, and your friends and your community. Um, and that sitting around doing exactly this and doing exactly what we do at the Seder night is the enactment itself of, of the freedom. And that's truly where the story ends, but only for now, until we add in more people. <laughs> so that is um, part of what motivates me to run this event and to bring together just a fabulous group of thinkers and scholars to ask questions that maybe the Haggadah doesn't exactly give rise to, but that are there lying beneath the surface. I hope that the questions and the answers that were proffered tonight have been provocative and have um, offered so much fodder for for thought and, and exciting, energizing different conversations to have around all of our own listeners converse- uh, seder tables this year. Um, and I hope that we will all you know, next year we gathered together in Jerusalem for an amazing seder telling event in the Temple courtyard, <laughs> um, and um, and until then, Chag um, Kasheru everybody. Um, and just as, as people are, and I, 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 I said this already, but I really want to thank all of our Cedar tellers for, for joining in this kind of unusual, though now this year precedented um, event. Um, and I hope it was as meaningful for you as it was uh, for me to prepare and think about these questions. Um, and as we are closing out, I just want to draw everyone's attention to one other. Um, Drisha offering for the Sea There. It's something, it's a podcast. You can listen to it um, while you're scrubbing out your refrigerator if that's not what you're doing right just now. Um, but it's really just a very, very beautiful production um, of Rabbi Silver's Torah together with, with songs that um, are performed by, by the Grammy winning uh, Andy Statman and um, bringing some new tunes potentially to your Sea There that that can really enrich in a different way um, than the content and the, all the words from tonight. Uh, so with that, chag everyone. Um, and thank you for learning with Tricia, as always.